I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. And I'm actually going to read a, a good bit of this. Parts of chapter 1 and parts of chapter 2. And we'll begin reading in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and in brick, and in all kinds of works in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Puah. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she, had, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made from bulrushes and, and daubed it with, with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then a sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Pray with me again. 
Lord, I ask that you would honor the reading of your word. Your word is central to our lives. So we ask that your spirit would breathe life to the words that I have read. That they would come alive in our hearts. That they would transform our minds. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, let your words remain. And may they change us. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. We're beginning a new series on the gospel in the life of Moses. And this series is likely going to last us all the way through February. Um, now, some of you might have this, this idea that um, you, you can't really study the gospel when you're studying the Old Testament. Um, maybe that idea is a little foreign to you. You've grown up hearing that the Old Testament is where you get you know, the law, but it's the New Testament that you hear, from, you hear about grace, you hear about Jesus Christ, you hear about the gospel, but that is not the case at all. It's not the case at all. One can only understand the gospel if one understands what God is doing in the Old Testament. And I would go so far as to say that one can only understand the life of Jesus if one understands the book of Exodus. Um, Because you see, Exodus points to Jesus. Exodus, it gives us the vocabulary that we need to correctly understand the life of Jesus, to understand who he is. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but most people share the same vocabulary. Um, we, we, we use the same words, um, but they have different meanings to different people. For instance, if I said the word liberal, liberal, everybody knows what liberal means. Everyone here has a different definition of what liberal is. Now, I have found that everybody defines a liberal as someone to the left of them. No one usually defines themselves as a liberal, but whoever's to the left of me, but that point of reference is always different. And so we, we understand what liberal means, but we all interpret it different. We all have our own little definition that's unique. Some, for some of you, you might think John McCain is a bleeding liberal, and for others you might think, no, John McCain is the most conservative guy there is, and we're using the same vocabulary, but we have different definitions, We have the same problem with theological words that we use on Sunday. We use words like redemption, salvation, sovereignty. We have phrases like freed from your sin. Yet all of us have slightly different definitions of what that means. Um, when I was at UCF and I would prepare students to go on, the, on mission trips, one of the things I would have them do is to share the gospel with one another. They'd break off in pairs and they have to share the gospel with one another. And I'd say, but one, one thing, you can't use any of the Sean words. You can't use a word that ends with T-I-O-N. You can't use salvation. You can't use redemption. You can't use justification. You can't use salvation. You know, you could go on and on. All the, the religious vocabulary that's there ends with Sean. And I said, you can't use any Christianese. Don't use the word saved. And I want you to share the gospel with one another. And you would, they would just sit there like bumps on a log and like, how do you share the gospel without using those words? But when it came, if they did use those words and you were asking, well, what exactly do you mean? Everybody had kind of different meanings. Yeah, much of our basic Christian vocabulary comes from the book of, of Exodus. 
Words like salvation, redemption, freedom, phrases like blood of the lamb, they all come from this book. Um, All of these expressions, they find their beginnings in Exodus. And Exodus gives us the vocabulary that we're going to need to truly understand our faith. Um, If you don't understand Exodus, you're going to have a limited understanding of the work of Christ and really who he is. And I'm not exaggerating this. I know some of you might be thinking, okay, we got the point. I'm not exaggerating. Unless you understand the vocabulary as it's used in Exodus, you will not understand Christ. You might use the same terms, but you will have a different meaning. I could have pulled from a number of texts, but let me just read um, two. One's in Luke chapter 9. A famous passage, the Mount of Transfiguration. I turned to Mark 9. I meant Luke 9. Um, no, I didn't mean Mark 9. Sorry. I was right the first time. Mark 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him up Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. As they were talking with Jesus, and, and Peter said, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know um, what, what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they, saw, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. And in Luke chapter 9 and verse 28, he had the same story, and it adds this little detail there. It says, when Moses and Elijah appeared, it says, and appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so you have this really intriguing story. Jesus, he goes up to this mount and he's transfigured, his face is beaming like the sun, And then there's Moses and there's Elijah there. And they begin having this conversation. They're talking. And Luke says in verse 31 that they talked about Jesus' departure. And in Greek, that is the word exodus. It's the exact same word. They were talking about Jesus' exodus. And so you have Moses who comes down and meets Jesus on top of a mountain. And they talk about the exodus. Moses had his exodus. Jesus is about to have his exodus. And it's actually very, there's a lot of similarities there. If you remember Moses, one point he climbed up the mountain. He was transfigured. He walked down. His face shone like the sun. Jesus goes up the mountain. He's transfigured. They're both talking about exodus. But for Moses, it's exodus with a little e. Little e. Jesus, he's talking about exodus with a big e. The exodus. The exodus Moses in which your exodus pointed. And he's talking about his departure or the cross. Through the cross, Jesus is going to provide true redemption, true freedom, in which the story of Moses is just a shadow. You can look at Hebrews chapter 11, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Verse 26 says this, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
Moses considered the reproach of Christ. What in the world does Moses know about Christ? More than we think. As we come to understand what God is doing through the story of Exodus, doing in the life of Moses, we come to understand Christ and His work better. We start to understand our salvation. Um, if, if you were to ask a, a Hebrew 3,000 years ago, you're sitting down having coffee and you say, tell me your story. Just, just tell me your story. Kind of like what we did during the summer. Um, they would probably say, you know, I was lost in my sin. I was, I was a slave in my sin. God had compassion on me. I, I called out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he came and he saved me. He didn't judge me. He didn't punish me. He delivered me by the blood of the Lamb. He delivered me. And now that I'm free, I can experience Him in worship. And now He's going to take care of me. And He's going to guide me. And He's going to lead me in this life. And He's going to take me to the promised land. That's what a Hebrew would say 3,000 years ago. And if He were to turn to you and say, now you tell me your story. You'd say, wow. It's remarkably similar. You know, I was a slave to sin. I cried out to God and He... He saved me. He didn't judge me. He forgave me by the blood of the Lamb. And now His Spirit goes and He guides me and He's leading me to the promised land. We would use the same language, the same vocabulary. And we need to understand what the the rescuing, what the exodus looked like then if we're to understand what it should look like now. You should see that your story is their story. Most Christians grow up in church their whole life. Um, And if you were to ask them what the word salvation means, salvation, usually you're going to get something like, well, you know that's when your your soul's saved. And like we looked at a couple weeks ago, when we go to heaven when we die, or our souls go to heaven when we die. If you were to ask a Hebrew in the book of Exodus what salvation means, you're not going to get that answer. Did they believe it was spiritual? Absolutely. Absolutely. They also believed it was physical. There's a physical element to this. And so we can't even understand our salvation apart from understanding the physical salvation here. Well, let's look at, let's, let's look at chapter 1 and 2 and we'll just kind of dig in. The book of Exodus, it picks up right where Genesis leaves off. Um, the sons of Jacob or in Egypt, 400 years go by. They multiply. They're this huge number now. So great, Pharaoh is scared. He's scared of them. And this fear drives the Hebrews, or the, the, the Egyptians, to start making the Hebrews slaves. We don't want them to overtake us. We don't want them to join our enemies. Let's, let's make them our slaves. And slavery is the dominant theme in the book of Exodus. You will find the word serve 97 times in this book. 97 times. And all of Exodus needs to be seen in the light of that word, service, serving. The key question to the book of Exodus is, who are you going to serve? Who are you going to serve? And when you look at verses 12 and 14 of chapter 1, it certainly seems like the Hebrews are going to serve Egypt. Look at verse 12 again. 
It says, but the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I've yet to find a good English translation of this verse. In verse 14, the words work and the words serve are the exact same word. They're the exact same word. Literally, it would read like this. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel serve as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. In mortar and brick and in all kinds of service in the field, in all their service, they ruthlessly made them serve as slaves. And translators, they don't like to write it like this because people don't normally talk like this. You don't use the same word over and over. Um, you know, if, if you're a writer and you were to turn that into your editor, the first thing would do, they would do is say, do you understand what a synonym is? You know, use different language, serve, work, use, you know, spice it up a little bit. And your translators do the same thing, but it's the same word, serve, serve, serve. Exodus is about serving. It's about taking a people who are in this bitter service to Pharaoh, freeing them, and moving them to service and joy and obedience to the Lord. Don't think of Exodus as this. It's a, a declaration of independence in which, you know, you're just free. It's not that at all. It's actually a declaration of dependence. Not dependence on Pharaoh, but now it's moving, transferring their dependence to the Lord. They move from ser- serving Pharaoh in harshness and in bondage to serving God in freedom and joy. Now, if you were to go up to the average Joe, I don't know if there's a Joe here, average Smith, um, and you were to just ask them, what did God say to, or yeah, what did God say to Pharaoh? What did God say to Pharaoh? Everybody's going to say, what is it? Let my people go. Let my people go. I mean, you, you, everybody knows that. Let my, there's songs about it. You know, we all picture Charlton Heston, you know, let my people go. And, and, and that's what, you know, Moses, that's what the Lord told Moses to go up and say to Pharaoh. The thing is, he didn't tell him that. You're not going to find that. Let my people go as if that's all there is. God actually tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. In the wilderness. Let my people go that they may actually transfer service from you to service to me. God doesn't want to just free them from Egypt and let them just try to make it on their own. He frees them to come and serve Him. There's a reason for your freedom to serve God. You are not just free from something, you are free to something as Christians. To something. And Moses, who wrote this book, he understands something that's really quite profound. He says that everyone is a slave to something. Everyone is a slave to something. You cannot live the life that God intends you to live unless God frees you from that. Unless, and God frees you from that, and then he enables you to do what you were created to do, and that's to serve God. But the Bible says that all of us are serving something. All of us are slaves. Some of us serve money. Some of us serve power. Some of us serve our parents. Some of us serve the need for approval. Some of us serve sex. 
Some of us serve climbing up a corporate ladder. Some of us, you know, we're just, we serve our own freedom. Some of us serve religion. But we serve something. And I would say that whatever has power, whatever you have given power over your happiness, you're serving. And it has become your master. And if you're a slave to anyone or anything other than God, that is an oppressive and ruthless slavery. Now, I know in America, in the land of the free, um, we deny this. You know, every man's free. Every man, completely free, but it's a lie. We're not free. All of you in here serve someone or something. You do. If your happiness is tied to getting recognition, you're a slave to that. If your happiness is tied to, to having enough money to where you can buy the house you want, you're a slave to that. If your happiness is tied to, you know, finding a great spouse or having the perfect marriage, you're a slave to that. If your happiness is found in religion, you're a slave to that. And what happens is when those things crumble, your whole lives crumble apart. You know, yes, it's going really well when you're making a lot of money. What happens when the money leaves? Or if you've built your foundation on religion, I'm going to do really, really well. You know, I'm going to have great ethics, great morals. What happens when you stumble? Does your whole life fall apart? There is only joy in serving the Lord. Some of you are a slave, I would say, even to your own freedom. Like, I'm not a slave to anybody. You know, I'm, I make my own choice all the time, all the time. Well, you're, you're a slave to your own freedom. And I've shared this years ago, but I went into a grocery store one time and I counted all of the cereal boxes that were in the cereal aisle, um, different types of cereal, just, you know, the, the categories. You know, it wasn't just Cheerios, but you have Cheerios, Cheerios, strawberries, Cheerios, blueberry or mixed berry, berry. Frosted Cheerios, whole wheat Cheerios. Um, there's now like Fruit Loop Cheerios, and so I mean, like just Cheerios. You got seven or eight, um, and and if you've heard this, don't don't tell. How, guess somebody. How many types of cereal I found? And this was like a Winn Dixie. wasn't a huge place. That was about right. It was over two hundred, just over two hundred. It's pretty amazing. Just over 200. I think it was 203. I didn't count the chips. You, I mean, it's even worse for chips. Yeah, taking account the off-brands as well. Oh, yeah. That's right. You have your Winn-Dixie, you know, Cheerios, your Winn-Dixie whole grain Cheerios. And, um, and we think that's such freedom. But now you go there, instead of just getting what is ever off the shelf, you're like, what do I get? I can cater to my own needs. Whatever, I, what do I want at this exact moment? And you're in bondage. And you see this actually every Sunday night. That's why we declare that we're going to Hacienda afterwards because otherwise we all stand there at the door and we're like, where are we going? I don't know. Who wants Chinese? I don't know. We could do Chinese. Who wants Mexican? Who wants... And we're all sitting there because we have so many choices. Who cares? We're a slave to our own freedom. It's necessary for us to have all these choices in order for us to be happy. But that will beat us down. It's a cruel master. Now, one of the most common objections that I have heard to Christianity is, okay, Joel, I agree with that. 
And, and man, I've been a slave to something. But I cried out that God would save me. That God would deliver me. And God did not. I tried this Jesus of yours and he did not save me. I've heard that a number of times. And, and I would tell you the reason why, why I believe that did not work. It's, it's because you're seeking to be freed from, but you're not seeking to be freed to. Free me from this sin. Free me from this addiction. Free me from this. But it's not, it's not free to serve the Lord. And so anybody who tries Jesus, it doesn't work. Because Jesus, he doesn't want to be tried. He says, no, don't try me. Trust me. Don't try me. Trust me. It means you leave that and you turn to me. You serve me. Back to this text, we can, we can look here and we can see that God's clear desire is to free the people from the oppression, but not the way that you would first think. And for starters, God is remarkably absent in the first two chapters of Exodus. I mean, later, you know, you've got all the smoke, you've got the, the, the fire, all of the plagues, all this stuff, but the first two chapters, he's remarkably absent. The Israelites are being terribly oppressed. God's nowhere to be seen. People are being killed. God's nowhere to be seen. The only reference that we have to God is concerning the midwives, saying the midwives feared God, and, and God did give them families. But other than that, there's no miracles, there's no displays of power. There's only cries for help with no answers. Yet God is moving behind the scenes. Uh, the first two women I want us to look at are, are, are Shipra and Pua. Two women that the Lord uses. Uh, when God works behind the scenes, the, the, the way that He works that we wouldn't expect, He uses five women. Five women. Men, they're nowhere to be found. But the women He uses and unlikely candidates in the first are Pua and Shifra. These two women were Hebrew midwives, which meant that they are the lowest of the low in society. For one, they're Hebrews, so they're slaves, they're outsiders. Secondly, they're women in a male-dominated society. Third, they're barren, they don't have children. And only barren women could become midwives. Basically, you are the lowest of low, and since you can't produce anything, the only thing that you can do is help other women usher in babies in society. So to be barren in this day and age was a total disgrace for a woman whose identity is wrapped up in being able to, to give birth, to contribute to society. And, and this is why you find in several Old Testament passages, wives telling their husbands or, or praying out to God, God, give me a child or take my life or I'll die. And that was a very real cry. Having a child was, was huge. And if they didn't have children, this was one of the things they could do. And every time they heard a child cry, it was almost just like a, another, another stab. That they couldn't have children. That this is the life that they're going to live. And yet, it's these two little powerless, oppressed women, they stand up to the most powerful man in the land, Pharaoh. I mean, notice this about the women. This should be one of the things that jumps off the page to us. They have names. Granted, they're not good names. But they're names. I mean, you've got Pua. 
I've, ne- I've never met, you know, a Pua or a Shifra. But Moses takes time to name them. I find it fascinating that in every commentary that I read about this, no one can identify the Pharaoh. No one knows his name. You have these two little Hebrew women oppressed. We know their names 3,500 years later. Here you have the mightiest man in the land who they thought was God walking on earth. Pharaoh, we have no clue who he is. We don't know his name. He doesn't last. But the nobodies remain. Because God doesn't look at the people like we look at people. He doesn't look at the powerful and says, that's the kind of person I could use. No, he looks at the lowly and he's like, that's who I want. That's who I want. I will choose the, the base. I will choose the foolish to shame the wise. Uh, the next woman we come across is Moses' mom. Now, Moses' dad is introduced in chapter 2, verse 1. Gone after that. That's it. You, you know, you, I mean, he just kind of makes this little appearance, and then the women take over again. Now it's the mom's turn. She takes over. And, and, and it's his mom who hides Moses. And she does the most creative act of disobedience ever. Pharaoh says, all right, throw your child into the Nile. She goes, all right, I'll throw my child into the Nile. <laughs> and she makes a little basket, and she puts Moses in it, and she puts him in the Nile. And she creatively obeys, and she preserves the life of her child. And, and so we, then we have Moses' sister, Another woman. She watches and she follows this basket all the way to where Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. Then it's Pharaoh's daughter now who has a prominent role. And she defies her dad's orders. And she goes and she takes this child out and she she has compassion on the child. And she's like, I'm I'm, going to let this child live. She defies her dad's orders. That's punishable by death no matter who you are. And then Moses' sister takes a little risk and she breaks social boundaries and she actually walks up to Pharaoh. Here you have a Hebrew girl slave. She walks up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, hey, i got a solution for you. Let me give you some advice. Can I give you some advice? And she goes through with it. And Pharaoh's daughter actually took her advice. I mean, there are no heroic men in this story. There's five heroic women. And these women all had the same qualities. All of them. They had compassion. And they took a risk. They all had compassion and they all took a risk. And the Lord uses that. He uses that. I tell you, you know, I see this in my wife and I see this in a lot of women. There's a huge burden on you because you have this this idea. You have this false idea of perfection, what the real woman should be. You know, Proverbs tells you the, the, you know, the woman and you all, that's, that's who you're supposed to be, all of that and more. And, and you always kind of feel like I'm failing. I'm always, you know what, you're going to fail. You will. I mean, we, we feel this all the time. Lauren and I, Lauren, she's saying, you know, I feel like I, there's this standard here. I'm supposed to, I just, I keep falling short of that. I'm like, you're right, but you know what? What kind of person does the Lord use? Have compassion. Have compassion on those around you. Be willing to take a risk when the Lord calls. Small things. 
small things that the Lord will use to bring salvation. Now remember in these chapters here that we don't see God really blatantly working. All you see is Pharaoh making decrees, Pharaoh doing all these things. Everything Pharaoh does, everything turns against him. Actually, the rest of the book of Exodus, you're going to see it all play out. All of his decrees, everything he tries to do, comes back and bites him in the end. You know, one, uh, chapter 1, verse 12 says that the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they grew. Pharaoh tells the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male children as they were being born and to make it look like an accident. But instead, midwives feared God, preserved life. Pharaoh gives a command, have all the babies killed, throw them into the Nile. Well, by his command, Moses was saved. The deliverer was saved. And actually, because of that very command, that Hebrew child's going to come to live in his own household. How brilliant is that? God working behind the scenes, but he's never up front. And this should be a great comfort to us. You know, when life is just throwing things after you. I mean, it's just throwing everything it has at you. And you're like, God, where are you? And God's saying, I'm behind the scenes. You don't see it, but I'm working it all together. I'm working it all together for your good. The very things that seem so powerfully against us. That boss you can't stand who's a thorn in your side. Well, he's not worse than Pharaoh. God's using him for your good or her for your good. Those things, that, 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 that person you can't stand, the, the, the mortgage you're, you're having such a hard time trying to pay, all those things working towards your good. Now this whole story here, let me just wrap this up. This whole story here lays the foundation for the gospel. This is an introductory message. This whole thing lays the foundation for the gospel. It sheds light on the story of Jesus. Don't walk away from here thinking, all right, the moral of this is we need to be brave like the women. You know, we need to try really hard, um, have a heart of compassion. No, those are good things, but don't walk away thinking that's the point of the story. Because the only way you can even be empowered to do that is by knowing the person to whom this story points. And this story, this whole story points to Jesus. When we read, and I hope certain things started firing in your brain. Man, this sounds so familiar. This story sounds so familiar. I mean, can you think of another story in which someone's born and, and a king tries to kill all the children? Tries to kill all of the male children? Orders a decree? Yet this child miraculously dis- escapes and is thrown into exile? goes off into the desert, empowered by God, used to deliver His people. Can you think of another person? Does it ring a bell? Rejected by His own, which Moses will be. And all of this is is to whet your appetite or a foreshadow. Pointing us, laying the foundation of salvation and deliverance and sovereignty. So when the true, the true Redeemer comes, the true Rescuer comes, we'll know Him. And that's our Lord Jesus. This whole story points to Him. And it's my prayer that as we go through the book of Exodus, and we'll also look at some of the rest of the Pentateuch, 
that the more and more we understand what God is doing, the more and more we understand our salvation, understand words like redemption, what they mean for us and for this city and the world. Pray with me. Lord, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You that the scarlet thread throughout the entire Bible is Jesus. We, we find hints of Him, shadows of Him, foundations for Him all throughout Your Word. And I pray that through Your Spirit we would come to understand and know Him more. Not just know about Him, but know our Lord and Savior. Thank You for Your deliverance and for Your salvation and how when we cry out to You, You have rescued us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.